Jim Aldrich had a stellar career writing for TV before he turned to World War II and late 19th century historical mysteries, which demonstrate all the page-turning immediacy of the TV shows he cut his teeth on. Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and on this week's Joys of Binge Reading podcast, Jim talks about growing up on a London bomb site and staying ahead in an ever-changing publishing world. Our giveaway this week is a book sweets draw again, literary, historical and book club fiction selection. Be in to win a library of great books, plus a brand new e-reader. $300 in total prize value, so enter the draw today. The link to do so is on the website thejoysofbingereading.com and do it today because this is available only for a limited time. The draw closes on November 22. Before we get to hear from Jim, I wanted to take a moment to issue a huge apology to those of you who may have reached out to me through my website contact forms, either through my book site at jennywheeler.biz or the podcast at thejoysofbingereading.com. I've discovered quite recently to my horror that emails from those sites have been going into a kind of internet netherland for quite a few months, never to be seen or heard from again. With the help of Toby, our new webmaster, we have solved this problem. I will answer all genuine inquiries as soon as I can, but unfortunately I can't get any of those historical ones back. Also, another reminder, if you enjoy the show, leave us a review so others will find us too. But now, here's Jim. Hello there, Jim, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. It's fantastic to be here, Jenny, and thank you for inviting me on. Look, you've had a fascinating, varied career with a very large amount of experience in TV before you set about doing your fiction writing with your historical mysteries. We're going to be focusing on those historical mysteries and two of your most recent books, Murder at the Tower of London, which is book nine in the Museum Murder series, and Murder yep. at Down Street Station, which is number five in the World War II mysteries. Tell me, yep. what made you change from doing TV to writing historical mysteries? I think, actually, what happened was, I had my first show on in 1971 which is a long time ago. And over the years, things changed at the broadcasting. I wrote for British, Irish, American television, TV and radio. And then what happened was, it's about almost who you know. And towards the end, I think I did my last script in 2002. After that, it struck me that the business had changed. Streaming had come in. When I first started writing for TV over here, there were only three channels. That was it. BBC One, BBC Two, and ITV. So if you had an idea, it was going to go on that. Now, there are so many streaming channels that you need to know 
who it is who's taking the decision. And unfortunately for me, most of my producers then retired. The commissioners I knew had retired. So the whole industry had changed. So I was faced with going out and saying to people, I've got this idea of what you want me to do. But by that time, of course, I was in my early 70s. And most of the broadcasters were looking for what they would call young and diverse talent. And I really didn't fit that. The reason I've survived so long in this business is because I've always been a great one for looking ahead, seeing where there's going to be a problem, and then moving into another one. So I went from t uh, radio to television, from comedy to drama, and so on, and, and on books as well. Seeing what's happening, because when you're dealing with a company, and I've written for some of the biggest publishers, you never know when suddenly there's going to be some kind of main corporate move. And suddenly, all the previous authors are no longer required. So yeah. that was it. I think yeah. I saw what was happening, and I thought, this is the time to move in the books. I'd already had quite a few children's books written, but that's what struck me. And tell me, what did you learn in TV that you brought across to your fiction writing? Very much. That rather than coming in and saying, this is what I want to do, learning with publishers, what are you looking for? What is your readership? Because you'd be, let's put, if you wanted to write, say, I don't know, I'll use the example, hardcore porn or something, you don't go for one who does regency, romances. And if, when I had a meeting with my current publisher, first of all, it was checking their list to see what kind of stuff they did, what was popular on their list. So then I could go along and meet them and talk to them and really pitch ideas or characters, which is what I did. I've written for lots of other people's shows, but not only the ones I've created myself. And if you were there and you had a situation where you wanted to impose your style on a particular series which didn't fit it, you'd soon get the sack. I've known it happened when I was on one of my own shows as a script editor, and we bought in a writer who we thought was ideal, and it turned out he had his own agenda. And then it can't go ahead. That's great. Look, Murder at the Tower of London is set yeah. in the cup of the... 20th century. It's 1899, in fact. And That's it begins right. with a rather gruesome death. It's really spectacularly graphic of somebody who's run through with a sword and stuffed into a, a coat of armour in the Tower of London. Now, it seems to me this very graphic opening is very much a TV kind of opening, isn't it? You're absolutely right there, Jenny. I think one of the things I learned as a TV writer, it was pushed on me, open with a big scene that grabs the audience. Because certainly with streaming services, you've got so many hundreds of channels. If you don't grab that audience straight away, they'll turn on to somebody else or yeah. switch it off. Therefore, yeah. go for the big opening and then afterwards, you can then tone it down a bit. It's Henry VIII's suit of armor, which makes it even more spectacular. Yes, again, most people, non-British, would know of King Henry VIII. But I thought it was most interesting that Henry VIII, the suit of armour he wore changed as he grew bigger, but much bigger. 
So the suit of armor that's on in the line of kings is actually of a sliver, Henry VIII. The line of kings is still a thing today, and you can actually go and see it. It's still on display at one you of can. the cafes in the Tower of London, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I thought it was both interesting, the idea, it is called the line of kings. And although Victoria didn't have her own armour, Queen Elizabeth I did. And she wore armour when she addressed the English army at the time of the Armada. But it was only the line of kings, so only the male were shown, even though most of them never went to war, actually. I love the way you include all those little factoids. And you say that, I think it was Charles II that made the ruling that it was only going to be men who were allowed to be in that line of kings. Was that right? Yes. Yeah, it's on the restoration. I think there had always been a tendency for some of the royal people to think that women should be handmaidens. And the one thing Elizabeth wasn't was a handmaiden. <laughs> Frankly, if you look back on it, the two of the toughest monarchs were Elizabeth and Victoria. And there were some fairly wimpish kings in between. Yes. Do you visit most of the sites that you write about? I do my best to, yeah. So consequently, even when I did like Manchester Museum, yes, I'd go to Manchester. So I do, I do go there. I like to get the feel of it. Many years ago, when I, I did a book about World War II, which included Pearl Harbor, and I went to Pearl Harbor, and you get that feeling there, being in place. It's quite an amazing feeling, really. I like to get the empathy and the ambience of, of the place, and that's why I work very hard to describe it as much as I can for the readers so they get that feeling of being there. It certainly does come through in the writing, and, and I suppose because I do like history, I was fascinated with many of the historical facts that you brought out. There was another one, for example, for people who are going to be doing a trip to London. You have... One of the Salvation Army officers who's murdered in the book is yep. murdered outside the pub where William Booth preached his first open-air sermon. And I gather that pub even might still be there. Is it still going in London? The pub is still there. It's called The Blind Beggar. Yeah. And the interesting thing is the notorious Cray brothers killed one of their victims in there. So here's uh, a notorious pub in, in London history. And I obviously didn't include that because it's just set in 1899, whereas Cray Brothers is 1960. But the blind beggar survived the blitz and the bombing and it's still there. Fantastic. I noticed the other thing you do in both your series that, that, that we're talking about, to you pair unusual couples together and for your detectives. You'll have one that's very aristocratic and intellectual and another who is actually quite working class. And in this one, the Tower Murder book, you've got Daniel yeah. Wilson, who's a former workhouse boy. He did go on to become a detective senior sergeant, I think, in the end. But his wife, Abilene, is an archaeologist who was one of the first women to study for a degree at Girton College in Cambridge. She didn't get given a degree because... They wouldn't let women get the actual degree, even when they'd done the course. But she had actually qualified for a degree. An unlikely pairing. How did you put them together? Again, I've always liked the idea of having 
two unlikely people in a pair. I've done this before as a scriptwriter. And the question is, how do you get them together in the first place? And once I realized who I need, who I needed the two characters to be, who were like chalk and cheese. And then I then came up with the idea of the first book in the museum series, the, the Fitzwilliam in Cambridge. And Cambridge, of course, is where Abigail was, and she studied at Girton College. And you're quite right. What's amazing is at that time, it wasn't until almost the middle of the 20th century that women were allowed to get degrees over here, although London University was different. But she is an archaeologist. She did the tripos and the, or the classic and is now um, doing the curating of a, an exhibition at Fitzwilliam on Egyptian artifacts. And Daniel, as a private investigator, is called in to investigate the body that's found in one of the tombs. And now they're together and they don't get on at first. And that is the old script writing trick. You get two people who at the start are daggers drawn and then gradually respect creeps in and then affection creeps in. And then you end up with a, a pair. You, you find it on almost every film, I can see, the, the great romantic film. Yeah, that's right. Now, we've been talking about this particular book, but you've got a new one in the series, number 10 in the series, I think, is coming out just next month, Museum in the Louvre. Now, this is maybe the first one in the series that sets outside of England. Tell us a bit about that one. Oh, that's right, yeah. Publishers and I had gone through the most popular museums in the world. It'd be nice to do a really obscure museum, but people in other countries yeah, I've never heard of that. Where the Louvre is one of the most visited. And I thought, this is a great idea. So it's got one of the best collection of Egyptian artifacts in the world. So when Abigail gets a letter from the professor there, inviting her to talk to him about working together on a dig in Egypt, she's puzzled. Because this guy has consistently been anti-her. It's gone in press and saying there is no place for women in deeds and so on, this kind of stuff. But she wonders, maybe he's mellow. So they decide to go. Now, Daniel has never left England. So they go off to Paris. She has the meeting. But unfortunately, at that meeting, and it's a shot horror thing, she goes to the office and finds the professor dead, stabbed through the heart with an Egyptian knife. And consequently, the uproar, she is caught and she's arrested and taken to the prison in Paris. That leaves Daniel, who has no knowledge of French at all, on his own in Paris, trying to work out how he can get her free because she faces the guillotine. And I just thought, this is interesting because suddenly now, how does he cope? How someone with no knowledge can't speak it, can't understand it. And that was the basic premise. And so it goes on and it really became quite intricate. And I absolutely loved that. I've been to Paris quite a few times and I love the Louvre, which has got a fascinating history. Murder at Down Street Station, the other series that we're talking about, is your latest yeah. World War II book. And that's yes. another one. It pairs an aristocrat detective with a wine person up-and-coming 
jazz singer. Now tell us about this pair. Again, when I was sitting, because before I start writing anything, I have to, and this is a hangover from the days of being a scriptwriter, I mull over who are my lead characters, where have they come from, who are they, and how can they be different without being too obviously different. And I suddenly had this thought about a guy whose name is Sax Coburg, Sax Ivan Coburg, because the royal family's name originally was Sax Coburg Gopper. So he's alleged to be, or thought to be, an aristocrat. And his brother, his elder brother, is, is an earl. So he is. But he keeps claiming he's not relating to the royal family. But he's been to Eton. I have to say, I'm more in common with Daniel because I was a working class kid from Camden Town in London, born right in the slums there, and never went to anything like Eden. But I just thought he would have gone to eat because that's where they went. And then the idea of always been a jazz lover, and the idea of that time of having a jazz seer who travels and they'd met up it makes an interesting pairing because again. In the same way that Abigail is a strong woman. I've never always despised the guys who tend to treat women as second-class citizens. And, the, and there certainly was a lot of it as I was growing up, if you can imagine. So I like a woman who is strong. And she is strong and talented. And there is a mutual attraction. And it burdens. So once I've got those two characters, my thinking is, if the readership likes them, then they would read more about them. And I think this is the truth about most detectives or characters in books or films. If you like someone, you then want to follow their fortune. Absolutely. And this one also weaves in some fascinating historical detail. And the Down Street Station, that's the centre of the title of the book, yeah. was a temporary safe haven for Churchill at one stage during the course of the Blitz, while the proper war office accommodation was being refitted, made stronger for the bombs. But as you say, Jenny, most people know the Churchill War Room when they come to London or they go there. But before they were in place, they realised it wouldn't withstand bombing. And so what they did, they looked around and Dowd Street had been closed previously. And they had installed the Railway Executive Committee at the very bottom of it because it was safe. And they controlled all the railway movements during, during the war. And it was strengthened and it was deep underground. Therefore, the middle part was given over to Churchill for his war cabinet. And that's where they were while they were cementing and strengthening the cabinet war room. When I discovered this, I thought, this is wonderful. This is, again, real history of London. And because there are so many of these abandoned underground stations, I just presented a, a lot of prospects. Yeah, fabulous. You mentioned in one of your websites that you actually were born during the Blitz, but you were far too young to remember anything about it. Yeah, I was born what's known as during the Little Blitz. The main Blitz was in 1940-41. I was born in 40 when the V2 rockets fell. Uh, my pram was blown up by one of them. 
my older sister, who was 10 years older than me, was taking me out during the day, walking down the local street with my pram, and a V2 blew up a couple of streets away. And these were massive, massive blasts. And the blast ripped my, the pram out of my sister's hand and raced it down the street. And it was on a slope. And it carried on careering down there until it hit a pile of bombsite rubble at the end where it turned over. My sister ran home to another and cried out, Jim's dead. So all the neighbors came out and they weren't running down. And when they lifted the pram, I was fast asleep. And I think it's one of the reasons why I can sleep through almost anything, thunderstorms or whatever. What I therefore remember most are the bomb sites afterwards. And because the area I was born in was in the triangle of Euston, St Pancras and Kings Cross Station, it was heavily bombed to try and knock out the railway. And as a result, all the streets around us, they were flat. It's like the images you get from Ukraine, it was like that. And if you ever see old films like Hue and Cry set immediately after the war, that's what it was like. It was Bond. I was lucky to grow up then. Is there any residual memory that makes this period of the war years somehow extra interesting for you? You were asleep, so you wouldn't have even remembered anything about it. But I guess that growing up, that landscape of desolation stayed for quite a few years after the war, didn't it? I mean, right up until the late middle 50s, about another 10 years before the rebuilding started. Yes, basically, as children, our generation, those of us who were in central London grew up on bomb sites. That was it. There were flattened areas. There were houses with the front hanging off, all this kind of stuff. And you just got on with it, basically. And But also, what you did have, of course, is the stories told you by relatives and how they got on in the war. What, one of my uncles had come home on leave and he'd fought at Alamein. And he was with my father and he said to him, this place is more dangerous than Alamein because of the, the bombs coming down. Luckily, if I'd been older, it might have haunted me, but it didn't. You just got on with it. Yes. Tell us about a typical writing day for you. How does that shape up? I get up eight o'clock in the morning. I click on the computer. So if I haven't got any thoughts about where I'm working, because when I do a book, I've got a rough idea of the plot, of what happened, the storyline from the beginning and then where it's going. But this changes. So that sometimes I'll go through and I think, yeah, that part's working or that part isn't working. And also, I might create a subsidiary character, say a villain or something, or some other character. And they develop a life of their own. And it's quite interesting because they then create a plot for themselves. So I then have to juggle it around. So it's always changing, which I like very much. And it goes on some days... If I know exactly what I'm doing, I can get straight to it. Other times, I'm not. So I'll go out and do some vegetable gardening. Many times, I've got a problem on a, a plot bit or a character bit, and it sits in my brain. And sometimes it works itself out at night, overnight. I wake up in the morning and I've got the whole thing worked out. And then immediately I get to the work process. A lot of my work is done in the morning. Do you have a aim of a certain number of words 
that you want to do every day? No, I know what I've got to get as the total. In other words, a book like the ones we talk about, murder of Down Street in Tower London, 80,000 words. I start to get more settled when I've done 20,000 because I know I'm a quarter of the way there. And I like to be able to read it and think, yeah, this is looking solid. And then I'm often, though, thinking to myself, hmm, there's not enough to keep all this going. So I then need to come up with another subplot. So I'll create another character or something like that. But providing I know when the delivery date is, and I will always deliver on that. In fact, I, I deliver ahead of time. But that's a leftover from script writing. Coming yeah. back to your point, Jen. Because yeah. when you're a script writer, when I was writing situation comedy, you had to deliver a script a week and you'd be going into the studio. Now, if you didn't deliver that script, there was no show. So I had to be done. And the same thing with everything, especially if you've got filming lined up, you've got to get it ripped. And so I learned in the early days, give myself time so that I can deliver the script. And then if there's any problems, it gives me a couple of days to sort it out. So I'd deliver in advance. It's more the fact that if it didn't work, if I didn't deliver, I wouldn't get paid. And also people would say, oh, you don't want to work with Jim Eldridge. He doesn't deliver on time or he delivers late. There were various stories about even some really great writers who had to be locked into a hotel room with a typewriter because they hadn't delivered yet. And I yeah. didn't want that to happen. I would, and I do, I keep to the same system with books. You've published 100 books now. You've got millions of readers internationally. Yeah. Do you have a particular goal? Do you do two books a year or three books a year? Again, now, and this is comfortable for me, I'm aiming at two books, two novels a year, two 80,000 word novels a year. But when I'm script writing, I was working, so I would be doing uh, different TV series at the same time and also two radio series juggling them all and it was the old idea of working through the night sometimes just to get them all done because don't forget no computers then this is an old-fashioned typewriter and I remember one particular case it was 1979 the reason I realized this there was a situation comedy I was doing and I'd got this Situation could be set in a hairdresser's where they discovered an unexploded bomb in the wall where the building work. And the producer phoned me up on Friday. We were due to record this following Tuesday. And he said, we can't do this. Lord Mountbatten has just been blown up. We cannot do a situation comedy with a bomb in it. No one will laugh. And I thought, oh. And he said, it's Saturday morning now. He said, can you deliver me the script tomorrow? Sunday. And I said, yes, because he needs to get prepared for the Tuesday. And I was completely stuck. I th and I was stuck during most of that day trying to work out. He said, because you've got no more actors. We've got all the actors' books. We've got all everything. And that's it. And basically, I did it on an old fashioned typewriter. I did it through Saturday night and then got on my mini motorbike and took it over to him on Sunday and, and delivered it. And that was it. That's the thing about it has to be delivered. And those lessons that I learned, but also it has to be acceptable because you can't just rush something 
But the same thing, if I'm delivering a book to someone, to, to my publishers, they want to know that it's good and people will like it. And if they think it isn't, they'll bang it back at me and say, for some reason, this isn't working. You need to change this, that, and the other. But all these things that you have to bear in mind, if you're what I would call a commercial writer rather than an art house writer, James Joyce, what? A book every 10 years or so. Now, that's good, but I don't think even today that James Joyce would be able to make a living with a book every 10 years. No, but I'm quite lucky because don't forget, as you said, I've got an awful lot of the back catalogue and oh, I've always yes. made sure I own the right. So in other words, the old shows that I've got at the moment, I have three old shows going out on BBC Radio 4 Extra and all the hundred or more books, they're all slowly earning not yeah. mammoth some but they think they say that's wonderful jim as reader we always like to ask our authors about their reading taste have you got anything you'd like to recommend to our listeners and what do you personally like to read personally i do like to read crime fiction which is why one of the reasons why i opted for crime fiction and yes my own choices are well, I would say the George Seminole Maygrave series. I love things I can reread again, even though I know they've done it for the same reason Arthur Conan Doyle and Holmes, Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie, an American writer, Ed McBain, who did the 87th Precinct ones. And these kind of things, they're long running series. I suppose you could always call them comfort reading. but uh, So that's the kind of stuff I enjoy. It's great because binge reading, this show, is really about those sorts of books. The books we read for yeah. entertainment, and those are all classics, aren't they? They absolutely are. They are. There are enough of them for me to know that there's always another one I can get to. It's yeah. absolutely frustrating if I read the first book for someone and I think, this is absolutely brilliant. And then it's 10 years before the next one comes out. That's why I like I'm a binge reader. That's great. Looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing that you would change about your creative career, what would it be? That's a really hard question. Because in a way, it hasn't been a plan. My career hasn't been a plan. It has actually gone from a bit of luck, starting off doing this, I did a sitcom, Arthur Lowe to start with. But as a result of that, the BBC said, what else you got? I came up with with the next one. Because at that time I was a single parent. So I came up with a a sitcom about a single parent father. And then as you start to get it, people would approach me and say, what have you got for us? Or would you like to write for such and such? This radio. We're doing this series. Would you like to join the writing? And so it went like that. There's one or two regrets I've got where I've said yes, because Michael Caine has often said about his acting career, he said yes to everything. He said, and yeah, I made, anyone see Jaws 3? He said, I never have. It's a terrible film, but I've seen the house that built me. It's lovely. So I tend to have that kind of attitude to it. Sometimes there have been times when I've said yes to a show thinking I would absolutely love it and enjoy it and discovered I really didn't. Either 
the ego of the star made me think I'm going to have to run him over of them. And I'll take the money and run. But generally speaking, I've been very lucky. I've enjoyed it all. I've worked with some fantastic people. I don't really have any regrets. It might have changed if something goes badly wrong. That's when you start to think, no, I shouldn't have done that. But I've been quite lucky is that most of the stuff that I've worked on seems to have done all right. That little remark about you worked with some fantastic people. I know it's very difficult probably to pick out some names, but are there any names that particularly float to the top of your head? You think, oh, that was just fantastic to be able to work with him or her, just a couple of them. Yeah, just one. I, I don't know if you know, Peter Davison, he was in Doctor Who, and he was in the first series that I did of this, this one set in school called King Street Junior. And he was wonderful to work with. Not only was he wonderful, but I'll give you an example. He was at that time, so I also used to teach. And I was teaching at a school for handicapped children. And there was a fate being put on. And I said, could you do me a favor? Would you come and open the fate? Now, at that time, he was doing a TV series. He was doing other stuff. And he only had one day off. And he said, yes. And he wasn't going to charge for it. Now, I say that because a lot of celebrities, if they open a fate, they charge a lot of money. And he came, and not only did he open the fate, and it threw it with rain down all the day. He walked around, spoke to everyone and everything. And I thought, this is one of the nicest people in show business I've ever worked with. He was, he was a sheer pleasure to work with. And I worked with a man called Dennis May Wilson, who was my first TV producer. And Dennis May Wilson, again, a lot of people won't have heard of him, but they might have heard of The Goon Show. He was the man who created that. Hancock's Half Hour, he was the first producer of that, till Deathless Do Part. And he was amazing. I learned an awful lot from him about comedy. Absolutely brilliant. So those are just two, one behind this camera, one in front of the camera. One of the areas of your work that we didn't get to talk about, and we don't have much time left now, but your remarks about both being a teacher and a solo dad show some hint of why children's books were so important to you. And particularly, it seems to me, children who might have a little bit more difficulty reading. You did a series for reluctant readers, for example, didn't you? Just tell us a little yes, bit about that. I was so delighted to be asked to do that. The rest is, way back in the 70s, I was teaching at a school in Luton, in a, what you could loosely call one of the disadvantaged areas. And I ended up specialising in the literacy. For example, I have one boy of nine who couldn't read, never read. And I taught him to read. And I thought to myself, if there's a mission I've got, it's to make sure that no child ever leaves my class unable to read. Because without that, you have nothing. And there were some very bright kids, and I've known some highly intelligent people, adults, who were illiterate because they hadn't learned to read when they were kids. And so that was the thing. And as a result, so when I was offered the chance by Barrington Stoke, who specialised in books for dyslexic children and adults, I was delighted to do that for reluctant readers. And some of the letters and emails I've got that made me happiest 
was I got one from a woman who wrote to me. She said, my son who's 12, just read one of your books. She said, he's never read anything before. She said, I sit here with tears rolling down my face. And that is the kind of thing that for me, I've won a couple of awards, which is nice, but that means much more to me than anything like that. The idea that someone who couldn't read can has now got a confidence and so that is the really big thing for me. That's lovely, Jim. And it sounds to me like you're one of those really lovely people that you say you enjoyed working with. That's a wonderful story. That's my false image of myself. I like to think so, but there you go. I always ask people, what have they got on their desk for the next 12 months? What are you looking at and wanting to get done over the next 12 months? I've got a lot on. I've just finished Murder at Lords station which is the latest in that world war ii one and i'm working already on the next one murder at Whitechapel road and there's another couple of books that publishers have asked me to give outlines for which i've done the outlines for i think i've got a busy 12 months ahead and then here of course my vegetable garden which is very important to me because i don't get a lot of exercise so getting out there and doing which potatoes i'm going to be planting stuff like that that's wonderful you live in Kent, don't you? I do, in North Kent. Do you enjoy interacting with your readers? I'm sure you do. How do you yeah. do that mostly now? I don't do social media and everything, but I would go and, and do the Children Book Festival. Well, I do book festivals, literary festivals, and people will come in and then ask questions on this kind of stuff. Now, I tend to do most of it by email. People will hit my website, and then it goes, contact us. Obviously, it goes like that. Although now and then, I've, I've recently had someone, I, I did an old science fiction series years ago, and the, the journalist contacted me and said, like, do we interview me about it? So he actually came down. I don't travel as much as I used to, because I approach 80. So that's why email has been great. That's wonderful. We'll put your email contact in the show notes for this episode so people will know where to find you. It's been a delight to talk, Jim. Thank you so much for being such a great host and just allowing me to talk away. You do it so naturally. It's just great to hear. So thanks a lot. Thank you very much indeed. Next week on Binge Reading, Australian best-selling author Gary Fraser and her latest empowering feminist fiction, The Milliner of Bendigo, twisty historical mystery and adventure. She's got trouble with the law and a missing sister and a growing attachment to the wrong man. Evie Emerson has a dangerous adventure ahead of her. That's next week on the Binge Reading Podcast. Once again, a reminder before I go, leave us a review so others will find us too. That's it for today. See you next time and happy reading.